Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Last week, we started a new series called God Designed Marriage, and we looked at several um, down-to-earth practical reasons for studying God's design for marriage as revealed in the Word of God. We talked about how necessary it is for our homes and our marriages to be built on the rock of God's Word, like Jesus said in Matthew 7, and uh, we want our houses to be built on the rock of His, His Word, His design as revealed in it, and not the sand of our own ideas or desires or what the world says about it, okay? Because His, His design, as we looked at, does not need to be improved upon. It doesn't need to be adapted to cultural whims, anything like that. And uh, only when we do marriage God's way do we experience um, God's blessing on our lives, our home, and society. Remember, the, the marriage is important because it's the foundation for society and, and for all of that. I mean, as the marriage goes, so goes the family, so goes the, the church, the nation, the world. So I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and look at that message. I, I'll remind you that this message, this series, is not picking on anybody. It's not anything like that. Um, uh, it, this, is a, this is a series designed to, to bring healing to the, the bad and the ugly, right? Because we've all experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly of relationships, and especially marriage relationships. Maybe it's our own marriage, or it's a marriage in our immediate family, or friends, or relatives, neighbors, whatever it is. Um, divorce rates are through the roof, and we just we want to address that. And, and we want to help, help, help people, help everyone, help ourselves, remind ourselves of God's design uh, to bring healing to the to the bad and the ugly and uh, anyway we want another reason is because we we want to do marriage God's way because we want to experience what we got married for right what'd you get why why did you get married is you longed for an intimate relationship with someone else someone you wanted to share your life with someone, right? You, you didn't want to be alone. You wanted this a oneness in your life, and that's what you desire from your marriage. And that, that oneness is what we're going to talk about today as we place this first building block of marriage called the canvas. That's what I'm going to call our first building block, the canvas. Next week, we'll look at the covenant. A canvas, what do you think of when you think of a canvas? A canvas is something that you, you paint on. Uh, it's a, it's a blank slate, and you, you apply paint to it, and you, you, you can make whatever you want on there, basically, with the colors that you have. A marriage can be thought of, I think, as a, as a canvas that paints a picture for the world about who God is and what He is like. And my question for you this morning is, what is your marriage painting? What's our, what is our marriage? What do you want your marriage to paint? What picture do you want it to paint for the world? God designed marriage, guys, uh, to mysteriously 
portray a heavenly uh, theological truth that I think much of the world is just clueless about. Even among those who were married, we're clueless about what God's really up to in marriage. And at first, uh, what I'm going to talk about today is going to seem like pie in the sky. It might feel like it's going over your head. You know, it's just, this is kind of dream work here. But for those, because some of you guys like, just give me the practical application, right? Uh, Just tell me what to do. But theology, this heavenly picture that we're going to talk about today, uh, theology, just understanding God and the things of God, that is primarily and more permanently what shapes the practical application that we apply. I mean, we don't need to talk about the application. That's why Paul, like in the first three chapters of Ephesians, talks all about theology before he gets to the last three chapters uh, when he starts to talk about the application, right? We have to have proper theology in order to apply it, right? So if you, if you know much about visioneering, um, Every practical goal is just a piece of accomplishing some greater mission or vision, right? So your company that you work for, maybe a ministry that you're involved in, they have a mission statement or a vision that they want to accomplish, kind of like ours is deep roots and bearing fruit. Well, in order to accomplish that vision or that mission, what does the company or ministry do? Every year they're going to set Goals, very practical hands-on goals that are going to help you to accomplish that mission or that vision. Well, our marriages as well have to have a greater vision to operate by other than uh, just whatever I want it to be. You know what I mean? Like, it has to have a greater vision than, well, I want to get married because it's going to make me happy. So... We have to have a a greater vision to operate by, to guide us in our day-to-day married lives. Um, When marriage gets tough, we have disagreements and differences. A husband and wife need a greater reason to stick together than their own happiness. Because if I'm not happy anymore, what am I going to do? I'm going to give up. But we're going to have a vision that shapes how we make decisions. In the art of marriage study that we're going through at my house, um, tonight you're welcome to come to that. Um, come talk to me after the service. They're, they're going around and, and they're interviewing kids and adults on the street now for this study. And they're, they're asking, uh, why do you think people get married? Why do people get married? And so some of the kids, their responses are just hilarious. One of the kids just says, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Like, I ain't going to get married. I don't, what? I don't know nothing about this. Right? Some of these kids say, uh, why do people get married? They say, because because they want kids, or because they want to spend their lives together with their best friend, or because it's fun to get married, you get to throw a big party and everybody gets to go and dance. Um, Some of the adult responses on the street were, uh, people get married for money. One guy said, I would get married if, if, if she had buku bucks. Probably not the best reason to get married. Especially in an inflated economy. No, uh, so another reason was they think it's going to fix them in their relationship. If I get married, it'll just fix our problems. And then, because it's tradition, it's just what parents have done, it's, it's a cultural thing, maybe. Um, adults also said they want a lifelong partner, they want a family someday. That's another reason. Uh, they want to express the sincerity of their love for someone through marriage. But uh, when most people get married, I... 
I just, I just don't, I think most people just don't grasp the grandeur of what we're going to talk about today. Even though I truly believe God created marriage to bring personal happiness to our lives. I mean, that's part of the reason you get married, right? Uh, it's okay to say that, okay? Uh, God did create marriage to bring us happiness. And, and some of those reasons people gave there, like I want, a, I want a family, I want a lifelong partner, those are good. But we also need to know that God created marriage with a heavenly purpose of revealing heavenly spiritual truth. Okay, revealing God's nature and character to the world. If our, if our reason for getting married is only because I, I think it'll make me happy or because it sounds like a good idea or because everyone else is doing it, that's not enough to see me through the inevitable difficulties that come along with marriage. Because not every day is going to be happy. Not every day is marriage going to seem like a good idea. Um. I'll, I'll say goodbye, right, as soon as it's not making me happy anymore. And if, if my idea is that the one, if I find the one, they're going to make me happy, well, if they're not making me happy anymore, I'm going to go keep looking for the one, right? That's the world's concept of the one. It's a myth. But uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 this morning, uh, the, the book of firsts and beginnings, where we find the first marriage uh, between the first man the first woman and uh, it's going to help us understand uh, this, this greater enduring vision and mission that we need to operate by in our marriages, okay? Um, so let's look at chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 first. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them, plural. So God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so Genesis 1 kind of covers uh, the whole creation week briefly there. Talks about God creating a male and female. Genesis 2, however, is going to zoom in on this day six of creation where God created man and he expands on what specifically and chronologically took place that day. So, first thing, chapter 2, verse 7 The Lord God formed the man uh, of, the du- of dust from the ground. He formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So he's only created Adam at this point. Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, eat from it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, uh, this is rewinding to what God did, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God 
caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, uh, first heading that we're going to see today, or the first picture, is the picture of oneness. The first thing that marriage pictures, the picture of oneness. If you're, you know, if you're just reading through Genesis for the first time, or just just reading it plainly, verses 26 and 28, we didn't read all of Genesis 1, but verses 26 through 28, the creation of man would probably be more of a shock to you, and I believe they're intended to be. It's kind of like Enoch's uh, rapture in chapter 5. It's like, well, this guy lived this long and he died. This guy lived this long, he died, he died, he died, he died. And then they get to Enoch and it's like, he wasn't, for God took him, right? So it's like, oh, whoa. So you have this really monotonous, repetitious narrative, and then you get the shock. Like, what just happened to Enoch? Well, same thing in Genesis chapter 1. It's like, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, God said, let there be, then there was, it was good, the sixth day, morning and evening, whatever, you know, and it just goes every day, it's like that, really monotonous, repetitious. And then you get to verses 26 and 28, and it's like this big moment. This divine deliberation in the Godhead where God says, let us make man in our image. And you're like, well, what? What What's up with this plurality here? What God says, let us, our image, according to our likeness? And so at that point, you've got to be thinking, okay, there's there's something, something special about man here, right? He didn't make the rest of the creation in his image. So man's kind of a big deal. He's the last thing God creates, and this man is actually going to rule over creation. But then you've also got to think, what's up with this plural reference to God, right? I think you've got to see here the seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity being planted right here. That's the big book of firsts, right? Here's the first reference to the Trinity. Uh, Through the use of singular and plural references to God, God has both a plurality and a oneness to him. He is triune, meaning that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we know God is, by His very nature and essence, a relational being. I mean, throughout all of history and before the creation of man and before the creation of angels, before any other created thing, God was, we could say, never alone, right? These, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all eternally existing beings. It's the mysterious, almost incomprehensible doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches it. I believe it. I don't always understand it completely, but it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense as to why we're relational beings. But uh, throughout all of history, God has been in this mutually self-giving, others-glorifying, loving community relationship, even within Himself. It's what some theologians call the dance of God, which suggests that no member of the Trinity is ever just going to sit still. If there's three of them, no member of the Trinity is ever going to sit still in the middle and demand that the other members of the Trinity orbit around them. 
Right? So there's three members of the Trinity. I wish I had three arms with three hands, right? I, I would do this with three. But they just kind of orbit around each other like a dance, right? That's not literally. I'm not talking literally. But they're just, they're working to glorify each other. No one demands the glory. Like the Father glorifies the Son, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son. They're living for each other's glory, right? C.S. Lewis said in, in in Christianity, God's not a static thing. He doesn't sit still. He's a dynamic, pulsating activity of life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think of me irreverent, a kind of dance. Another theologian said the persons within, the God, within God exalt each other, they commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement and overture, and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. Uh, Timothy Keller said, if this is the ultimate reality, if this is what the God who made the universe is like, then this truth bristles and explodes with life-shaping, glorious implications for us. I mean, if this world was made by a triune God, in a sense we could say relationships of love are what life is really all about. And I, I would say it's safe, I think it's safe to say marriage reflects this relational oneness of God. Kind of reflects his nature. I think that's why God's deliberation and man's creation is stated in both singulars and plurals. I think that's what the narrative is trying to communicate. And that's why instead of creating both Adam and Eve from the dust as totally distinct individuals, Adam is created from the dust and then Eve steals his rib. Right, <laughs> she likes to have ribs apparently for dinner. No, I don't know. Eve is—that's a horrible dad joke too. Eve is created from Adam, and I always blame my wife for taking my rib. I have a rib missing. No, I'm just kidding. Eve is created from Adam, and then she is glued or joined back to Adam in oneness of marriage. Describing the Trinity, Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." Right? He is in the Father, the Father is in Him. Well, in marriage, these two become one. Eve is bone of His bone, flesh of His flesh. Jesus said, He has seen me, has seen the Father. You just see all these, the, the nature of God, and then what He weaved into marriage is just, it's theologically mind-blowing to think about. Uh, Paul in the New Testament, for various reasons we're not going to discuss today, he'll say it's good not to marry. Singleness has its advantages in times of persecution, and uh, as far as being able to be completely devoted to God, singleness has its advantages, right? Um, but even for the single person, he must know why Genesis 2 verse 8 says it's not good for man to be alone. I mean, every, every other thing God created, right at the end of day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, halfway through day six, creates the animals. Every time he did created something, he says it's good. But then he creates Adam, and what does he say? It's not good. What? It's not good for man to be alone. It, it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. I was thinking of some reasons here. Maybe just because he's going to try to steward all of God's creation by himself. Poor Adam, right? That guy needs help. Uh, but also, he was made in, in God's image, which means he was made for 
relationships. I think that's part of what it means to be made in God's image. We're made for relationships. A relationship, number one, with God. A spirit relationship with God. He's a spiritual being, unlike the animals. And then relationships with others. A relationship with others. Um, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a, a good thing. It's not good for man to, to be alone. Marriage is good. That's a principle we want to take away from this today. We weren't made, uh, marriage is good because we weren't made to live in isolation. We're not made to live in isolation. I think we figured that out, right, in 2020 with all of the uh, emotional and just the, the chaos that ensued as a result of uh, the shutdowns. It was just so depressing. It was so hard on people. Uh, especially cognitively, I mean mentally. Uh, when we try to live for ourselves and our interests alone, when we try to you know, sit static in the middle maybe um, and try to get others to orbit around us and, we, and worship us, maybe we, we favor money or possessions or adventures or accomplishments and power over human relationships. We try to manipulate people in our relationships, to worship us or to orbit around us. Timothy Keller says, you're going to dash yourselves on the rocks of reality. You'll be a broken person because you were never meant to live for yourself alone. You were made to glorify God, right? You're made to, to, to serve others. You're, not, you're made for loving relationships. And love, I'm talking about love, more, love is more than just a feeling, Right? Love is sacrificially giving of yourself for another's good. I mean, as long as we, we live for ourselves, we're not going to know what it's like to really live. Jesus taught on multiple occasions how you must lose yourself in order to find yourself, to find your life. You live for yourself, you're going to lose it. You won't really find it. He says, unless you, like, Become like a seed and you're, you're, you're planted in the ground, you die. You die to yourself. Die to living for yourself. He says, you're not going to bear fruit unless you die to yourself. If you live for yourself instead of the glory of God and for others, you're out of touch with the nature of reality altogether. You might have to th think some of these things through here, right? I told you this was like, last week was down to earth. This is like way up here. Okay. <laughs> I, but I think this is why so many marriages can't seem to get it together. They go into it. Why? For their own happiness. And in some measure, that's okay, right? But your marriage is only going to start to click when you start to sacrificially love your spouse. Uh, Tim LaHaye says in this one book, the best intimacy is not between two people who look like Ken and Barbie, but between two people who are more focused on meeting each other's needs. In marriage, you can dance or you can dispute. You can compete for the middle place or you can complete your spouse. You can compete or complete. You can try to manipulate them to get them to serve you or you can model Christ and serve them. Make sense? If there's competition, let it be a competition to see who can put the other person first who can be more Christ-like. And that's part of why marriage is good is because it sanctifies us. It conforms us to the image of Christ. I Just add kids to the mix and 
and then it gets even worse, right? <laughs> Man, raising kids is a whole other level of Christ-likeness. I mean, you serve those kids, right? You, you pour yourself out to raise those kids, and kind of reminds us of what God has to do for us every day, right? Um, second heading we're looking at is the picture of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5.22 is where we're looking for this one. Um, it's a passage, passage we're going to spend more time in later, but it says, The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's what Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm referring to Christ and the church. See why I called it a mystery? Because marriage depicts Christ's relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ. You think most people get that? When they get married, they go into it thinking, I'm going to model the relationship between Christ and the church. I mean, if you understand marriage was designed to picture Christ and the church, His people, it's going to change your choices because in an argument, I mean, you might say, you, might, you have to think this. This is not just about me. This is not just about us. This is about God's glory. This is about a heavenly reality. This is about teaching the world spiritual truth. This is about Christ. And so in our marriage, when we're in an argument, we can't seem to settle things, we have to remember that we're demonstrating Christ's relationship to the church. We're demonstrating His gospel, His good news of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness to the world. I think I can get over the fact that my my wife left her socks on the floor again, right? She can get over the fact that I left the toilet seat up again because we're living for, well, maybe she can't because she's walking out of the auditorium here. Just kidding. There's a problem in the nursery. Um, bad timing, wife. Um, I left the toilet seat up again. But we understand when we're in an argument that eventually this is going to lead to forgiveness and love and grace and mercy because we are modeling Christ's relationship to the church. It's not just about us. This is about Him and His glory. We have a purpose to live for. There's so, so much, so beyond just ourselves. And this vision of Christ and the church, that, that's going to unite you in mission. We have a mission to to to, I guess, to uh, help expose this vision to the world of what Christ and the church is like. And it, and it teaches us also, doesn't the gospel teach us how to maintain oneness in our marriages? Forgiveness and the sacrificial love. See, we're going to forgive each other and stick with it because that's what Christ does for us. And it's his relationship that we model. You have to think, my marriage is a, a statement to the world. It's a gospel testimony about who God is. It's a paint, I'm painting a picture for the world about God. I mean, that's, that should be our desire, I think. Our marriages, I like to think of them like, like, uh, like little seminaries. 
You know, little Bible schools. My marriage is a Bible school for my kids. And I should be able to say to my kids, if you want to know how Christ loves the church, just watch the way I love your mom. The way I, I set aside my own interests and I, and, I, and I serve her, right? I love her. And then my wife, the same thing. I should be able to say to my kids, if you want to know how the church just respects Christ, just watch the way your mother treats me. I like to think of our marriages as like a little Bible school or seminary. And uh, this, this passage also reminds us that marriage is God's idea, and it has to be. It is not man's idea. Marriage is not a social construct. God has the patent on it, going all the way back to the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1. I would even say that before that, before Genesis chapter 1 and 2, before the creation of the world, God planned for marriage to mysteriously communicate his nature and his faithfulness to the church, his nature and his character. So man and woman did not just you know, start getting married and God said, hey, that, what those people down there are doing, are, that's a good depiction of what my relationship with my people is like. I think I'll use that in as, as an illustration. No, I mean, God had marriage in mind before he created the world to depict his nature and character and to effectually cast into this cancel culture world unconditional love for better for worst for richer for poor till death do us part unconditional love what would this world be like without marriage Without the unconditional love that is expressed in that family relationship, are your kids going to be your kids if they disobey you? I can't imagine this world without the family concept and marriage. Your kids are your kids even if they disobey you, right? They're always your kids. They're always your children. There's unconditional love there. It doesn't, I don't care what my kid does. They're still going to be my kids. I'm always going to love them. Can you imagine a world without that sort of social unit in place. That's why in Marxism and communist countries, the family becomes a fortress against cancel culture. It's a stronghold for the gospel. Maybe nothing demonstrates, though, that this was God's idea. We talked more about that last week, by the way, if you want to look up that sermon online, but uh, marriage and the culture. But maybe nothing demonstrates that this was God's idea more than how the way God made Adam realize his need for a wife. So God has all of these animals walk by Adam in pairs, and he's naming them, right? I imagine they're walking by him, male and female, you know, a buck and doe and a hen and a rooster and a, a ram and an, a ewe and uh, something like that. And he's, he's naming them, and it's getting towards the end of the line. And he's thinking, wait a second, how come there's two of every one of these animals, but there's only one of me? And so it says, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Adam realizes his need for Eve, and then God goes to work and creates for him a wife. And he puts Adam to sleep. Uh, maybe that's like the first anesthesia, huh? Uh, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from Adam, and then he fashions that rib into a woman. And that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But here's kind of a, a neat note here. Ribs are a bone. Think about this. 
that regenerate themselves. If you take a rib out properly, they will take that rib and they'll use it somewhere else like they're, they're, they're to do a bone graft in other parts of the body. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of like you take the, the rib out of the, the skin around it, the periosteum, and a, a rib will regrow. So Adam wasn't walking around with like, you know, one less rib his whole life. The rib will actually regrow. And I just, I have to point that out because I just think it's so cool. Only God would know that and then dare to record it as a historical event in his word. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome stuff. So anyway, Eve is taken from Adam and for Adam to be his helpmate. And together, these two are going to carry out the will of God. Um, it's neat to me to think, too, that just as Adam and his bride were going to rule over God's creation, you know what, what the Bible says, Christ, the last Adam, he is going to rule with his bride, the church, in the millennial kingdom. What a great mystery, huh? Just think these things through. Uh, anyway, let's also note that God created Eve perfectly for Adam. Adam was put in a deep sleep. It was not his idea. God it's God's idea. And then he creates Eve perfectly for Adam. Adam didn't have a say in the matter. He didn't have an assembly line to choose from. He didn't make any suggestions. God didn't say, Adam, what, do you, what kind of hair color would you like on her? Right? What kind of color of eyes? Uh, he didn't have any, you know, there, there's no suggestions to hair color, eye color, body style, height, weight, whatever. Now, why is that? What's, I don't... I think we can say that's not what matters most, right? Well, Hollywood tends to make sentiment and feelings and the externals the most important thing in marriage. God's Word says to consider the internal first. I mean, I would never suggest marrying someone you're not attracted to or have feelings for. I mean, that's, that'd be crazy. But we've got to remember that the externals don't last. Externals don't last. Um, metabolism... For most of us, it slows down, right? Metabolism slows down. Gravity takes over. You get bumps and bruises and bunions and wrinkles, right? Your tattoos start to change shape. Uh, if you have a tattoo, it looks like an ice cream cone. Someday it's going to look like it's melting, okay? Gravity takes over. I've seen tattoos that look like ice cream cones, too. Um, I hope none of you have that here. Uh, just kidding. So when you go to bed at night, someday you're going to put your eyes, well, I've got my set of eyes now, someday you're going you're gonna to take your eyes and ears off and put them in a drawer when you go to bed, and you're going to put your teeth in a cup of water, right? So if I get married for the externals, and they don't last, that's, that's probably not the best reason to get married is for the externals. Actually, 1 Peter 3 says, don't let your beauty be merely external, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart, the inner, the inner heart. Um, Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The Bible says we're to consider in a potential spouse their spiritual condition first. It says to only marry someone in the Lord, someone who we might say is born again, someone who has a relationship with God. To marry outside of the Lord uh, is like yoking um, light with darkness, it says in 2 Corinthians. It's like you're trying to yoke darkness with light. You're trying to yoke righteousness and unrighteousness. It's like 
A yoke. What do you think of when you think of a yoke? Maybe pulling a plow? Like you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna yoke a horse and your milk cow together, right? One's taller, one's stronger. It'd be the plow would not pull straight. You and the animal would be frustrated. Um, I always think of uh, John Deere thirty foot sweeps because when I was a boy, uh, my dad bought some a set of brand new. John Deere 30-foot sweeps, chisel. And he's just so proud of that thing. And uh, it was a big step for us. And uh, it looked something like this, but this is the drawbar. And uh, we had a hired hand come and help us, a young man. I think he was in high school then. And uh, anyway, he, my dad tells him, when you're going out to work this field, he says, stay away from the utility poles, the telephone poles. Because, you know, he didn't have any experience. My, my dad says, I'll get those later. I'll go around the edge of the field later so you don't hit one of these poles. Well, guess what he did? He, he smoked, a, smoked a utility pole, and he bent a drawbar on that thing. If you bend that drawbar, that thing is not going to pull straight. In fact, for the rest of that, we, we got a new drawbar for it, and it just seemed like forever for the rest of that thing's life. It just never quite pulled straight. In the Lord, you've got to be equally yoked. You have to equal, I like to think of a drawbar. You have to be equal. Um, to marry someone outside of the Lord, I mean, that's, it's never going to pull straight, we could say. If you're looking for someone to marry, I like the analogy of running hard after God. You've got your focus on God. You're running hard after God. And as you're running, you occasionally look to the side and you see if there's anyone is running as hard after God as you are, right? Because you want someone running hard after God. I mean, you're not even if you're don't just marry someone because they're they say they're a believer. Because if I'm running hard after God and I'm, my life is surrendered to the Lord, and He's my Lord. I'm not my only Lord, and I and I and I marry someone back here who's and it's not like you know I'm not getting into like spiritual you know like I'm better than this person or whatever but if you marry someone who's basically only a nominal christian or a carnal christian and you're a fully surrendered like I'm doing things God's way christian that too is going to cause friction so you want to be equally yoked in the lord and then on a spiritual level you try to find someone who's running as hard after God as you are I mean that that's the difference, I think, between a marriage being heaven on earth and hell on earth, is understanding that yoke. Marry someone who has the same Lord. If someone's not surrendered to the Lord, if that potential spouse isn't surrendered to the Lord, who's going to be their Lord? Probably themselves. Um, the closer a husband and wife, I like that triangle. Oh, I have a, a picture up here, too. The closer that a husband and wife are to the Lord the closer they're going to get to each other emotionally, intellectually, financially, physically. In every way, their oneness, the closer you are to the Lord in your marriage, the closer you are to each other, that oneness is increased. Um, but think about this too. Adam and Eve, Adam knew Eve was perfect for him because the Father designed her and brought her to him. He created Eve and then he brought her to him as a gift to be received. And Adam's all excited. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I, I always want to put an exclamation point there because you can see his excitement in the text. He thinks she is awesome, right? She completes him. And uh, it just reminds me of 
every time that bride walks down the aisle, everybody's looking at the bride, and man, I like to just look at, like we like, most, a lot of people like to look at the husband, right? The, the man, because he's like just tearing up and excited as can be, like he's about to receive this perfect gift from God. Let's take home from today that your spouse is a, a perfect gift to be received. That's a principle we see here. And that's the first thing we do in a, in a wedding ceremony, a marriage ceremony, is that declaration of intent. We kind of recreate Genesis chapter 2. Remember, uh, the father of the bride brings her to the man. God the father created Eve, brought her to Adam. And I will, I will ask a couple if they will keep the charge that God has given to them to, for the man to love his wife and for the wife to respect her husband before the man receives his bride. That's the charge. Will you love her and will you respect him? And I also say, will you receive them as a perfect gift of God designed to make you more like Christ? They are a tool in your life to sanctify you. They are a gift to you. And the art of marriage study, again, they talk about that myth of trying to find the right one. How do you know if you've found the right one? Our world tends to operate by the idea that if we get married and things are smooth, they always make me happy, then I've found the right one. And if there's difficulties, well, then I guess I haven't found the right one and I just have to keep looking. I would say you've found the right one if you've married them. And they are God's perfect gift to you. And spouses have to trust God's sovereignty in that. However you happen to meet, God and His sovereignty allowed you to meet, and He brought you together, and you are perfect for each other. And that also becomes a key to fighting temptation because other people are going to come along, other people that you're attracted to someday that you think about, and and you're going to have to remember God did not introduce me to them. He introduced me to my wife. My wife is perfect for me. And besides that, I wouldn't even like her anyway because she's probably got an ugly personality, right? Or whatever it is. God, in his sovereignty, brought you two together at that point in time. And your spouse is perfect for you. And part of receiving God's perfect gift means accepting your spouse's differences. They're going to be different from you. Differences between a husband and wife are great. We've got different backgrounds and personalities and temperaments and and spiritual gifts and talents and scars and feelings and ideas. I mean, that Love and Respect series uh, suggests that men think in blue, they speak in blue, they hear in blue, and women speak in pink and think in pink and hear in pink, right? We're different. Male and female, we're different. But that, too, is by design. Differences are by design. That's our last principle. We need to point this out because a lot of folks get stuck on this thinking we need to be exactly the same. Yeah, we need to be united in the Lord, but unity does not mean uniformity. We weren't created exactly alike, and that is functional. The differences are functional. It's kind of like a team. You can't all be the point guard. You have to have a post. You have to have whatever. There's different members on a team you can't have everybody can't be the quarterback it wouldn't be a team anymore there's different different roles so don't i guess waste your time trying to change that don't try to change each other 
because it's not going to happen or at least happen successfully because we're wired differently. And those differences are actually meant to build a strong team. Scripture says each spouse should just concentrate on doing their part to live out God's instruction, right? What has God commanded me to do as the husband or me to do as the wife? You do what God commands you to do and then let the Spirit do the rest, right? You got a, you got a husband who doesn't love you. The wife, First Peter 3 says, respect your husband and you might win his love. You got a wife who doesn't respect you, love her. You might win her respect. But you just do what God's called you to do. And that ends the crazy cycle. If you don't want to know what the crazy cycle is, go through love and respect. Um, differences are by design. If you remember that, it makes a world of difference. And then in another message, we'll talk about Adam and Eve's transparency and how important that is to experiencing oneness um, when we look at the care of marriage. But oneness is more than a business partnership. Oneness is a lifelong process of blending our lives together. And when it's done God's way, it makes a powerful statement to the world. Because communication, we know, is not just by lecture. It's by life, right? We model the truth. Teaching is not just taught, they say. It's also caught as you watch how other people live. In fact, that might be the way we learn the most, is just by watching other people and taking in how they operate and how they live. Um, one man said, when marriages work as God intends, they act as magnets, drawing the disillusioned and confused to consider the reality of the Christian faith. And a good example of this was in Chip Ingram's book, Marriage That Works. And that book, by the way, is back there on that table, uh, just in the foyer there. Um, someone in the Brian Fellowship blessed my wife and I with some significant donation, and uh, we decided to just forward that blessing to you guys, and so we bought a bunch of books. And so please take one of those. Those are free. And uh, don't thank me. Thank the anonymous person who, who blessed us. But um, anyway, he said that he and his wife, Chip Ingram in that book, said he and his wife once had a next-door neighbor gal who got to see the good, the bad, and the ugly in, in their lives. Uh, their, this neighbor was not a believer, but their families kind of, they interacted a lot. And uh, just before she moved away, she said, I've always been turned off by religion, and I'm not sure if I believe in God. But over the years, I've watched you and your wife. And if I were ever going to be a Christian, she said, I would want to be one like you. And Chip says that she wasn't saying that because his marriage was perfect in, a, in any way. But their, their marriage was a reflection of the master designer. Those are his words. He said, they loved each other through life's ups and downs, and she saw in them a commitment that made an impression about her understanding of God. That's pretty neat, isn't it? So what? picture is our marriage painting. What do we want it to paint? And I would challenge you this week to strengthen the oneness of your marriage by asking your spouse, did any of you go on a date? That was my challenge last week. Go on a date with your spouse. If you haven't done that, I challenge you to do that. Go on a date with your spouse. Get a babysitter, whatever. But secondly, just Ask your spouse how you can be praying for them. 
and then pray together. Sit down and pray together. Praying from the heart for your spouse and hearing your spouse pray for you. There's just a spiritual connection there that's going to draw you together like you wouldn't believe. When you are close in, in that, that prayer, I mean, that's going to draw you closer together in, in, other way, in other ways. But you're connecting at that spiritual level. So pray for each other. Pray with each other. Thank you.